0: Hey, it's Andrew, the Director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to The Archive Project. I'm your host this week, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week, we're bringing you an event from the 2022 Portland Book Festival, which took place at Portland Art Museum on Saturday, November 5th, 2022. The hour is split into two halves of thematically related conversation. Up first, OPB's Tiffany Kamhai interviews writer, Melissa Phoebos about her essay collection, Girlhood. And in the second half of the show, OPB's Jen Chavez speaks with music critic and New Yorker staff writer Hua Xu about his memoir, Stay True. We paired Melissa and Hua for this festival event because their books share many themes of adolescence and coming of age, of exploring identity through art making and finding your voice, and of searching for and finding your people, finding belonging and a community. Listening back to the event, the conversations revealed further relationships and how they talk about their books. Melissa and Hua each speak about how processing the large and small events and emotions of their lives through writing has been a way that they understand their lives and a way to find meaning. Hua mentions his early music fandom was quote, learning to have feelings, which I really liked as a way to describe some of what it seems like the essay or memoir writing process does for Melissa and Hua. They also both talk about how writing about events or traumas in their past, including revisiting writing from their younger selves, has helped them realize how their relationship to that event or trauma changes over time. I think that you hear in these conversations that for each of these writers, Writing about their experiences created a new compassion for their younger, messier, angrier selves. A good reminder for many of us, I'm sure. We'll join Melissa Phoebos first, talking about girlhood with OPB's Tiffany Kamhai at Portland Book Festival 2022. Uh,
1: My name is Tiffany Kamhai. I am uh, one of the hosts of All Things Considered at your local public media station, Oregon Public Broadcasting. Uh, this is Boys and Girls in America uh, with Washu and Melissa Phoebos. Melissa, thank you for being here. Thank you for being here, Tiffany. All right, so I just have a, a quick bio that you, she quickly edited this before I came Splash. out. <laughs> uh, Melissa Phoebos is the best-selling author of four books, including Girlhood, a Lambda Award finalist and winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism, and Body Work: the Radical Power of Personal Narrative. Uh, Melissa is an associate professor at the University of Iowa and lives in Iowa City with her wife, the poet Donica Kelly. Again, thanks for being here. Thanks. So you. excited to talk thanks to you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we're here to talk about girlhood. Um, this is a collection of essays that explores the ways uh, society views and governs women's bodies. It's uh, part memoir and part investigative reporting. The essays are very, very personal and sometimes difficult to read only because uh, of the truth that it lays bare about the cultural conditioning that girls and women endure through their lives. Uh, but Melissa also offers ways to break free from this narrative by digging deep into her own experiences. Um, oh, so do you have your book? I don't, because I didn't Do You have me it up. memorized? No, no, no. Oh, it's, it's much less
2: sophisticated than that. I have it <laughs> in my phone. Uh, Great. Right. So Tiffany asked me to read a yes, short. I
1: have a short reading, uh, or Melissa has a short reading. I will set it up for you. OK. If there's anything wrong, please correct me. OK. But, um, so yeah, let's just start off with this reading uh, from one of the book's essays uh, that revolves around what's called a cuddle party. And uh, to set the scene, you are in a room in a New York apartment surrounded by mostly strangers, listening to the founder of these gatherings, his name is Adam, uh, go over the cuddling ground rules.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm going to set the scene a slightly more. So the floor, I mean, this is Portland, so I assume a lot of you know about cuddle parties. Um, <laughs> but the, it was this loft in, on the Upper West Side and there, there, all the furniture had been dragged out, I presume, and there were mattresses and pillows and like the whole apartment is a bed. <laughs> <laughs> so I've just heard the rules, the 11 rules of the cuddle party space. Some of these seemed more obvious, such as pajamas stay on at all times and respect people's privacy when sharing about cuddle parties. Others, while comprehensible, were sentiments I'd never seen before, like, you are encouraged to change your mind. I had reviewed all of the rules before deciding to attend and been heartened by the emphasis on consent, but that emphasis was even more pronounced in practice. Adam acknowledged how difficult it can be to establish clear boundaries around touch. Many of us, he said, did not learn how to say no in our families or how to differentiate between different kinds of touch. When we got to rule three, you must ask permission and receive a verbal yes before you touch anyone. He asked us to turn to a nearby person and perform a role play. One person was to ask, do you want to cuddle? The other was to answer, no. The first would then respond, thank you for taking care of yourself. Are you all ready? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) The young man and I faced one another. Do you want to cuddle, he asked. No, I said, and my mouth involuntarily stretched into a smile as if I needed to soften the refusal. My face grew hot, and I felt myself blinking quickly. Was it really so hard for me to give an anticipated no? I felt uneasy in my body, surprised by the strength of my reaction to the exercise.
1: Yes, so that passage is among many others in girlhood that I feel really encapsulates how difficult it is for people who are perceived as women to say no to men. Like even when you are given explicit permission, you were told to say no, you do so apologetically. So my question for you is what was, what was your experience like at this cuddle party? And what do you think your body was trying to tell you? Okay.
2: And then I just talk for the next 25 minutes. <laughs> Straight from my body to you. Um, no, I uh, my experience at the cuddle party was one of great surprise. So I go two times, and the first time I went, you know, a friend had texted me and said, "This seems like something you'd go to." LOL. And I, um, and when I read the phrase "cuddle party," I just the cringe that I felt was so it was like in my organs. Um, <laughs> And most people would take that as a deterrent, but that's me. I was like, well, certainly there's something here that I should go find out about. So I went to the cuddle party and what I did not expect was that I would cuddle with people I didn't want to. Um, And so even after like a 30 minute workshop in affirmative consent um, and listening to the actual desires of one's own body, you know, it was like I had Three little no tickets and when those were gone I only had yeses left Um, and I found myself negotiating and these are like strange awkward straight men like not a demographic that I generally people please Um, (laughs) and I just I just I I, I could not explain it. I, I still struggle to find easy words for it um, because I was there with my girlfriend. <laughs> like, uh, I you know, I'm a lifelong feminist. Like, I didn't. Um, so w- we left. Um, And I was there with a friend who had suggested it and my girlfriend. And my girlfriend had been experiencing skin hunger because she'd lived in this really remote place. Anyway, we get in the car and they were like, oh, my God, I'm like so high on oxytocin right now. How was your experience, Melissa? And I was (laughs) like... I hated it. every minute of it. I'm so deeply uncomfortable. I don't even know how to explain what happened. Like I, I couldn't even, I didn't even have words to say I cuddled with people I didn't want to, right? It was only until later, like processing it. And once I sort of processed it, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, was like, well, you need to go back to the cuddle party. And I was like, what? <laughs> and she said, you have to go back and just say no to everyone. And I was like, first of all, I'm a Libra, and that's extremely (laughs) rude. I'm not gonna go to a nice restaurant, order a glass of water, you know? Um, And two, if I couldn't say no the first time, why would I be able to do that the second time? Because I didn't want to, you know? Um, And so I basically decided to figure out what had happened, and I sort of, I really think of that essay as a kind of mystery. Yeah, where my own behavior, like this is the body, and I was like, what happened? And it took me a couple years to go back when I really felt confident that I would be able to say no.
1: Yeah, so it seems like um, that was the essay, Thank You for Taking Care of Yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of the essays where you, you uh, become a journalist, and mm-hmm. you talk to a lot of other women, and it seems like that was part of your... Your your processing. And so you talked to a bunch of other women about their mm-hmm. own sexual experiences, and you found that nearly everyone that you had talked to had been touched without their consent or with something that you call empty consent. Mm-hmm. Can you just describe uh, some of the things that you heard from the women you talked to?
2: Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll define empty consent first, which is started out as the phrase consented to acts, sexual acts, that you felt ambivalent about or actively did not want, which is cumbersome. (laughs) So when I was interviewing people, um, let me back up a tiny bit more. Basically in the first part of this sort of on the hunt to kind of figure out what happened, I basically, it didn't take me very long to find this extremely long timeline, basically my whole life, but especially from like early adolescence to adulthood, wherein I consented to forms of touch, sexual and otherwise, that I didn't really want. Um, and once I realized that, I thought, oh, I see, this is one of those experiences that I thought was just me, or that was so normalized I didn't think about it at all, and now that I am thinking about it, it seems highly unlikely that it was just me. And so first I started talking to friends, and my own mother, and then total strangers, and I had a list of questions, and one of those questions was that long phrase about touch that, you felt ambivalent about Mm -hmm. or actively didn't want. And just as a shorthand while I was talking to these people, it was actually men and women and non-binary folks, Mm -hmm. um, but I used the female-identified interviews for the book. Um, I just started saying empty consent because it felt descriptive. And then as soon as I started using it, my interviewees picked it up and started using it as if it was a term that we already had known before in this way that I think, (sighs) evidenced um, how much we needed words for it, right? And that was the experience I had over and over and over again in those interviews is every single time they said, I've never told anyone this before, or I've never even talked about this before, or I've never even thought about this before. I just thought it was sex. I never thought to sort of differentiate between sex that I actively wanted and sex that I tolerated.
1: Yes, right. when I was reading about when empty consent in that essay, it felt like I knew exactly what you were talking about. Like yeah. I didn't need it defined. Right,
2: <laughs> right. I mean, I, I, I'm really glad that the term came that way. Um, but yeah, I was expecting that I would, you know, find some similarity between my experience and some of theirs, but it was unanimous. Everyone, mm-hmm. including the men and non-binary people I spoke to, Everyone. Um, which was, you know, shocking and not shocking and
1: a little bit sad,
2: a lot sad. Yeah.
1: So one of the other themes in this essay, you touched on this a little bit, um, uh, is the idea of skin hunger, mm-hmm. um, and. That I feel like a lot of people know about now because of the pandemic. You know, there's a wider audience of people that know what skin hunger is now. Um, How, I I know you wrote this before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. The cuddle party happened before the pandemic. Really hit different when it came (laughs) out. Yeah. How did did that land with you? Um, I don't know.
2: You know, I really feel like I've made peace with the fact that writing is... all all of my finished writing is an artifact of my best thinking at a particular moment in time. Uh, There was another part of me that was a little bit like, oh, is anyone gonna really care about this because everybody wants to be touched right now? But, you know, it turns out that um, a lot of people, and this was my experience, um, I'm trying to think of how to keep this condensed. (laughs) So, you know, the end result of that whole mystery was like, oh, I have been ignoring my body's wishes for so long, I do not even hear them. Mm -hmm. And in fact, for me to get that information, I need to request it and be like, body, do you want to cuddle with this person? And then like wait for an answer (laughs) to like travel through the mechanisms of all my dissociation and then like finally peer in my consciousness. Um, And Being isolated in the pandemic was in some ways a huge relief. And this, of course, is like partly, you know, um, comes out of the privilege of living with another human who, with whom I have healthy touch. Um, But it sort of created for me an easier way when we started moving back into being in person, you know, people were like, like they started doing the thing that we should always do, which is say, is it? are we, do you hug, <laughs> you know, um, because we were aware, we so we had become aware of other people's boundaries in terms of illness, um, and we're not socialized to be aware of people's boundaries in terms of just plain old bodily sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And so it became like this social enactment of this thing, this culture i had to create inside of myself, right, and sort of forge a pathway in a larger social landscape where that wasn't the convention, and I, on my own, I had to suffer a lot of awkward moments where people would come in for the expected hug and I would just back away. And, but it turns out like the awkwardness passes almost instantly, whereas receiving hugs from people I don't want full body contact with lasts a really long time. Yeah. Um, so what happened was I heard from a lot of people, specifically women, who felt the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it didn't. The pandemic didn't change the timeline of people's lives and how they'd related to touch and how it had alienated them from their own bodies. Yeah. Right.
1: So uh, a lot of girlhood uh, talks about how you hit puberty early, um, earlier than some of your peers, mm-hmm. and how that shifted how boys and men perceived you. I'm wondering, what was your relationship to your body growing up?
2: Mm. Well, I had a very particular mom who like uh, raised me vegetarian, and like again, I'm in Portland. This doesn't sound weird, but we we're on the East Coast, in like a small town in the East Coast in the '80s, and she like went through all of my children's books with a sharpie and like changed the genders of the characters so that the female character, like Gretel, was the one with the breadcrumb idea and
3: stuff
2: like that. Um, <laughs> So I was, like, pretty sheltered, in a way. Um, And what that meant was that I had very little sense of myself, my embodied self, as it was perceived by others. And I was, like, a really vigorous, clumsy, like, outdoors kid. And, yeah, I just didn't really think about it. I was totally unselfconscious and really happy in my body and identified, like physical strength and, you know, maybe some things that we associate with sort of, um, masculinity, those were sort of mm-hmm. sources of pride for me
1: as a kid, if anything was. Yeah. So. And that all changed once you hit puberty. Mm-hmm. Like, do you, did you understand why men and boys were treating you differently? I mean, yeah, they made it, they make it pretty clear. <laughs>
2: um, yeah. You know, it's funny cause even, as you're asking me this, like, I know how I've written about it and how I explain it. But just now when, when you asked me about it, I sort of felt the way that that time in my life is so opaque, because I just vacated my body so fast. Like I, I don't even have a lot of specific memories that are sort of infused with emotion, because it was so shocking and so uncomfortable that I was like, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I uh, I looked. You know, this this woman came to the signing for my earlier event, and she was talking to me about girlhood. And and she said to me, I think it's okay if I share this if she's here. Um, she said, you know, I had this body when I was 11, which is a phrase that I've said many, many times because that's what it felt like, like suddenly I had been zipped into another bodysuit and that had completely changed my meaning as a human being in the world. It was incredibly disorienting and and so incredibly ordinary, you know? And I think that's that for that fact, the commonness of that trauma took me, writing this whole book before I could even use that word to describe it, kept me from sort of reckoning with that experience for decades and decades and decades because I felt like I didn't deserve to have been so affected by it because so many of us are, right? And the thing I've come to, which I've come to at other points in my life, but it, it has a hard time sticking, is that just because something is ordinary or common does not mean that it isn't a trauma or that it doesn't hurt us. Right? right,
1: well, speaking of that, you you kind of, in the book, you kind of struggle to find another word for uh, some of the encounters you've had. You, you don't wanna call it sexual assault, but maybe it's something that implies less trauma or a different kind of trauma. I'm wondering why is it important for you to have a different language for that experience?
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I think
1: because
2: I it was just a way of circumventing my own resistance. Like I knew I needed to look at it and that there was some work there. I was trying to write about it and I could not like capital T trauma I just could not classify my experience with the things that I thought of as serious traumas, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was and it really those experiences did exist in this very sort of liminal gray area, and i I couldn't call them sexual assault because the other person had not assaulted me. I had consented. Um, and but psychologically, as I was you know reading all of this literature about how sexual assault affects the brain and behavior, it was exactly the same as a lot of um, responses that I had to early experiences of touch that took just as long to undo, maybe longer because I was unwilling to acknowledge that the wound even existed. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the word I come up with in the book, which still feels really unsatisfying is event. Um, but I really just needed a placeholder. Like, you know, my wife, um, writes poetry and in her latest collection, she uses brackets to sort of as a placeholder for things that she doesn't want to name or where words feel insufficient and that feels more accurate than any word I know of
1: Mm, Event, it still doesn't seem exactly right though No, I mean this is an event Yes (laughs) So I do want to leave some time for a few questions so if you have any um, start thinking of them now I have a few more questions for you first Um, (laughs) We'll get to you guys Um, what do you think it would be like for, for young girls to go through girlhood today with social media?
2: Oh my God, we were just talking about, my friends are in the second row here, we were just talking about this at lunch. Um, I mean, I, I, in some ways it's incomprehensible, but I feel sort of split between on one hand feeling... So incredibly grateful that there was no internet or social media as it exists today. I mean, there were like AOL chat rooms. So I was like sneaking out of bed in the middle of the night and pretending to be a 40-year-old lesbian <laughs> in <laughs> chat rooms and arguing with people about whether we should spell women with a Y or not. Um, true story. So, but that was it. And, and I just, that inability to say no when I wanted to, could have manifested in life-threatening experiences. And I'm really glad that that opportunity was not there. Um, At the same time, the isolation of growing up in a small town, having these experiences that generated shame um, and having no one that I ever spoke to them about was so perpetuating, right? And I think if I had been able to sneak out of bed at night and find a chat room where I was able to anonymously Mm -hmm. talk about this stuff if that had even occurred to me or if I could watch a TikTok where someone was talking about it, I think it would have been easier to sort of break that silence and to not take responsibility for my own suffering for as long as I did. So I don't know. It depends. (laughs) It depends. It could... I think it's harder in some ways and and easier in other ways.
1: Yeah, okay. I have... One more question, um, and then if there's audience questions. Um, So hopefully you can try and be... This is a big question. I'm sorry. What kind of advice do you have for women who want to or are currently trying to unlearn patriarchal perspectives? Because I know you've done a lot of work. It's been like your life's work. Mm
2: -hmm. I think... I mean, it really is. It's a life's work, right? And it's easy to get overwhelmed really, really quickly. And I would say the things that have made it a sustainable life's work for me are surrounding myself with other people who are up for that work so that we are not, you know, um, denigrating our bodies when we talk to each other. And... Um, I don't know, where we're sort of encouraging each other to live in liberated ways, and to sort of recoup the sovereignty that we were conditioned to give away, right? Mm -hmm. And I would also say that um, just like following joy, it sounds really corny, but I'm thinking of uh, one of my favorite essays of all time, Audre Lorde's um, Uses of the Erotic, The erotic as power. Um, And she just describes sort of this, this capacity for joy that raises the bar in every area of one's life. And she likens it to, you know, she describes the erotic as something you can experience writing a poem, building a bookshelf, um, making love with someone. And once you start to sort of Bring that capacity for joy and that standard for sort of integrity and self respect and bring that into all of your relationships, it becomes sort of impossible to go backwards, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That feels more possible to me than like. Facing down centuries of misogyny and patriarchy <laughs> with my pencil. Just a little bit you more.
1: Know. <laughs> All right, I think we have my colleague, OPB Jen Chavez, is talking to uh, WashU next. Um, so please stick around. And Melissa, thank you again thank for being you. here. Thank you, you so much us. for coming.
0: That was Melissa Phoebos talking about her book, Girlhood, with Tiffany Kamhai from OPB. Up next, OPB's Jen Chavez speaks with Hua Xu about his memoir, <laughs> Stay True.
3: Hi. Wow, this theater is so beautiful. I can't really see y'all, but thank you for being here. Give it up for Hua Xu, who's here to have a conversation with us. Um, this is his book, Stay True. Y'all should check it out for sure. We're going to talk about it right now. <laughs> I'm so Pleased to be joined by Hua Xu today. Hua is a staff writer at The New Yorker and an associate professor of English at Vassar College. He serves on the executive board of the Asian American Writers Workshop as well. In the late 1990s, Hua was a college student in Berkeley, California, writing zines, scouring record and bookstores, driving around the Bay Area with his friends with mixtapes on blast. But the summer before their senior year, his best friend, Ken, was killed in a carjacking. After the sudden loss, Hua began writing everything down about Ken and to Ken, about what happened next. And over the course of the 20 years that followed, what he started writing then became his beautiful new memoir, Stay True. And I'm so honored to be here to talk with him about it, Hua Xu. Thank you so much for being here.
4: Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks everyone for being here too.
3: (laughs) Um, so when you and Ken first meet, you are different in a lot of ways. (laughs) There's some ways in which you are opposites. I don't think you liked him at first, uh, but you write about the first time you met Ken and the first time you actually met Ken. What do you think it was that allowed you both to click like that to actually meet?
4: Right so um it's so it's so generic in hindsight but you know it was the 1990s I was very into being as different as possible mm-hmm. um and I was desperate to just distinguish myself from my parents my close friends everything and so you know I went to college as I think many people do just to find people who were like mirror images of me
0: you know mm-hmm. who yeah. <laughs> were into
4: the same esoteric things I was and so you know the fact that he was just sort of this what I assume to be this like mainstream fraternity bro kind of guy, I, I was, that's not the person I went to college to befriend, you know?
3: Right. But,
4: um, you know, I think one thing you realize, particularly as you grow older, is just that the people who kind of push you, the people who ask you why you dress the way you do or why you whether you actually like this music, um, the people who try and, um, you know, just try and figure out who you are and, and stick with you. And that was someone, that Ken was. you know, He was very much someone who actually had patience for me as I rolled my eyes as aggressively as possible at all the things that he was into. <laughs>
3: um, and you and Ken were both Asian American students at UC Berkeley, um, but from different backgrounds, you are the son of Taiwanese immigrants. He came from a Japanese American family that had been in the US for several more generations. Um, how did your family background shape how you both were like forming your identities within American culture in different ways?
4: It's a good question. I, I think for me, you know, my parents immigrated in the early se- late 60s, early 70s, independent of one another. Then I came along. Uh, they, they didn't necessarily come to the United States pursuing the American dream mm-hmm. as some legible thing. It was more like you know, they were just going mm-hmm. to graduate school and this was the next step in their education. Um, along the way, they really settled into certain things that kind of marked them as Americans. Like, they got really into music. My dad had this huge record collection, which had the effect of making music seem like really uncool to me when I was growing up. Um, but, you know, they were very much first-generation immigrants. Like, work hard, keep your head down, don't, don't seek attention, things like that. Mm. Um, a lot of my kind of misgivings are just sort of Misreading of Ken when we first became friends is, and this is a micro distinction that kind of only makes sense, I think, to certain Asian Americans, but you know, like to meet a third or fourth generation Asian American whose parents don't have an accent and who don't have this kind of strong relationship to the country that they came from, it's very weird, you know, because so many of us are are more recently immigrated. And so for him, I felt like I projected on him that he felt kind of more at home in American culture. And it's something that we talked about a lot, just the dreams he had of like the kinds of things he would wanna see on on TV or in the movies and and the things that I claim to be too cool to ever want. Uh, Probably because I just didn't wanna be disappointed.
3: Yeah, Um, I mean, much of this book is about Ken and your friendship, Um, but in the beginning, you write about your dad and you write about when he moved back to Taiwan um, for work, y'all communicated via fax. um, And you included several of these faxes in your book. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about what was in those faxes and the type of relationship y'all had through those faxes at that time.
4: Yeah, I don't know if people here are well versed in like, (laughs) 80s telecommunications (laughs) technology but you know a fax machine it's sort of it, it it looks like a copy machine but basically just feed a piece of paper and it prints out somewhere else right it's cheaper than long distance calling and my dad moved back to work in the the semiconductor industry which wasn't really a thing back then and now is um and he it was was sort of in this pivotal time for me where I was taking harder classes and like I was really struggling with math. So ostensibly the fax machine was so that he could help me with my homework, Um, also known as like doing my homework for me. So (laughs) I would fax him a question at night and because of the time difference, when I woke up, I could just like jot down all the answers over (laughs) breakfast. And, you know, I think as a teenager, you're kind of like contractually obliged to to tune your parents out. You know, like your parents are just kind of trying to guide you through this, this pivotal moment in your life, like these, these years when you're becoming a young adult, uh, when you're entering your, your late teens. And he would often write these messages to me, like in the margins of the, of the faxes, um, you know, about working hard, about finding my passion, about things that I was interested in. And, uh. I would often ignore these things, but then if he, but then every now and then I would tell him like, yeah, the Giants are doing well. I'm into this band. Um, you should check this out. And looking back, you know, he was really trying to give me advice about growing mm-hmm. up, about becoming this like kind of American young man, which is not something that was really kind of native to him. Obviously, like yeah. he was really trying to help me figure out what it meant to you know, grow up in this society that he was no longer really a part of. But, you know, he'd read the read the papers, kind of know what was going on. And, and it was very moving to to find out that we still had these. Not a surprise because my family and I were all like pack rats. But um, yeah, I found this sheaf of faxes from 1992 to 1995, where we talk about um, Kurt Cobain taking his own life, uh, the Loma Prieta earthquake in San Francisco. Um, and all sorts of kind of world events, and uh, I don't know. It's a fascinating time capsule of of this moment in my life.
3: Yeah, it was really fascinating. He forgot to read about those. all of it.
4: I, oh, really? I, I walked in, sort of teary-eyed, <laughs> to Dad, like, "You tried so hard, even though you're in Taiwan." And he just sort of chuckled, just like, "Yeah, I, why do we still have that?" Um, <laughs> and he he didn't remember any of these conversations. But I was like, "No, no, there's there's physical proof. Like, you you did." You know, you were really present, like in these faxes. He's like, ah, that's that's good to know. So,
3: yeah, (laughs) I mean, I thought I thought so too. (laughs) So, good job, Dad. Um, so so you mentioned a minute ago that your 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 parents kind of made music seem a little uncool to you, which I think um, later on, you know, in college, through your friendship with Ken and through your friendship with your other friends, y'all are building your identities together, and music played a huge role in that. And with you and Ken, like your tastes were pretty different. Like this is a guy who liked Pearl Jam and Dave Matthews Band. And I just have to pause here and I say, I I realized a a wild coincidence that Dave Matthews Band is playing in Portland tonight. (laughs) I saw that a couple.
4: Are they here? Is anyone from here?
3: Dave Matthews, are you here? Um, but, uh, but Ken was also very, like, receptive to what you were putting on mixtapes for him and um, interested in, in what you were listening to. Could you talk a little bit more about the role that music played in your friendships with Ken and with your other friends at that time?
4: I mean, I think music <laughs> is just one of these great... Um, I mean, I think as a teenager, you're just looking for... You know, you're drawn to people because you're so similar, mm. and then everything outside of that Venn diagram of things you share is like that's you, that's your identity. This is you. You sort of fixate on these micro distinctions between you and your friends to figure out who you are and to sort of like triangulate space for yourself. And so, for me, at a pretty young age, like after I got over the fact that music was actually kind of cool and that my, <laughs> I shouldn't sort of dismiss my my father for being like uh, someone to records. Um, it became the key the key way i would judge everyone like mm-hmm. it became the key metric for whether i thought someone was like cool or not i mean this is just sort of generically insufferable 90s person i'm talking about <laughs> um, but and you know like in the in the longer view of history the bands i was into and the bands that he was into like they coexist on many spotify playlists you know <laughs> that's but, true but i was just really into um you know i I have this line in the book where it's like, I had no problem painting myself into a corner as long as I could claim that corner as my own. Like, I didn't really have these dreams of entering into this larger cultural sphere. I was really into just kind of like independently produced, like homemade indie music from like Portland and Seattle and Chapel Hill and these these places that seemed so like cool and exotic compared to Cupertino where I was growing up. Mm. And so I was very into just the stories that music could tell you about a different place. And, and I think music, for many of us, it's how we learn how to have feelings. Like it's how we learn how to love. It's how we learn about heartache. Like you hear all these things before you actually experience them. And so I think for me, I was just always looking for music that spoke to how I felt. Not lyrically, but just kind of like how the song sounded. And um, maybe what I was looking for I thought was very different from what other people wanted.
3: Mm-hmm. And I wanna I want to circle back on this in, in just a minute, but I you know, talking about the the narrative thrust of this book, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh the summer before your senior year, Ken is is killed. Um, and it's this very sudden loss. And um, right after his death, you start writing and writing and writing. Um, why did you throw yourself into it to that degree, do you think? And and what were you writing about?
4: Yeah, I mean, it, it happened over a weekend, like yeah. Saturday, Sunday, and then most of us, we, all, everyone found out essentially Monday. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things I did was just to go down the street and buy a journal and start writing stuff down. And I think writing just, I always liked writing, but I didn't really think it was, it it didn't provide me any kind of emotional meaning, it was just something to do. And all of a sudden I just desperately wanted to never forget, you know, and Mm -hmm. so I wrote down all of our inside jokes. I just wrote down these like mundane episodes of our lives, because you know, the, once, you, once the sort of other person is gone, you realize that there, there will be no new memories, you know, there will be mm-hmm. no new inside jokes. And so you begin to really kind of hoard and scavenge and, and, and protect everything that you do have. And uh, that's, that's what I did. And it was also a way to just not be present. You know, it was a place to escape to. Um, I would just write, write him letters, I would write letters to like, my future self, I would just write down jokes and vignettes, you know, lists of places we'd gone to. Um, and it was just a, a way to never forget, and, but also to not be present in a way and to um, kind of carve out some space in the past. Um, so yeah, I became really obsessive with writing and, and you know, a, there are quite a few sentences in the book that were written in those first few days. And for the 20 years that followed, I would just go back to the journal, go back to these documents on my computer and try and figure out not just how to describe things, because I think so much of writing is like I'm I'm thinking something or feeling something, like how do I put this into language? Mm -hmm. But I didn't know why I was doing it. I didn't know what I was searching for necessarily. At a certain point, I had exhausted my memory. I'd written it all down, but I didn't know what it was for. I just knew that I would continue doing it until I felt ready for something.
3: Mm-hmm. And you know, you, as you just said, some of these sentences in this book were written right after he died. Um, you didn't realize it was going to be a book necessarily for years later. Um, can you talk more about how your process and your your goals with writing changed over the course of this really long period of time
4: yeah absolutely i mean i I think that it's i think it's pretty natural um, i think I think when people experience loss or, or or you're sort of grieving sometimes you you think that there will there there's a destination right like Mm-hmm. Once I get over here, I'll be fine. Or once I get over here, then I will have like gotten over something. But right. that's not really how it works. you know. Um, your relationship, not just with the event, uh, but with yourself, changes over time. And when I sat down to write in July of 1998, I knew that I didn't think it would be a book because I didn't think I'd become a writer. I thought mm-hmm. I would just go to law school or something. But um, <laughs> I knew that I would continue writing because it just felt... Necessary. Mm -hmm. But when I was writing from, I don't know, 1998, for like the next 10, 15 years, it was often just an attempt to escape into the past. Like I was very much just stuck in the past in a way. And I have all this like ephemera from that night, like just things, matchbooks, receipts, uh, lottery tickets, cigarette packs. And I would often just write and then look at all these things look at all of the, the sort of like archive of our friendship that I had written down and just sit there and like try and make sense of it. You know, I thought that was why I was doing it. Mm-hmm. But then as I sat down to write it a couple years ago, I realized that there's no sense. Like it, this was a senseless, completely random thing. And all you can do is think about, you know, that, that it's possible to reflect on the good times and the joy and hold on to the happiness and to think about you know what we shared and that doesn't necessarily diminish the sadness of what happened or the tragedy and that idea of um, you know because I think it's it's a sad book but I think there's like funny parts too
3: yeah <laughs> there's
4: also <laughs> aspects of it that are very much about this like kind of banal ecstasy of being a young person mm-hmm. and just how um, how gorgeous it could be to just be in a parking lot with your friends trying to figure out what to do next, which isn't something that you appreciate in the moment. And I think reflecting on the beauty of those moments was something that I could not, did not let myself do early on, because I was just so hung up on the senselessness and the sadness. Um, And so being able to balance the, the sort of happiness of my memories with the sadness of what ultimately happens is something that that only happened when I finished the book.
3: Yeah, what were, I mean, we're talking about, yes, that there is, this book is about fun. I mean, when you got to that point, what were the most joyous parts of the book for you to write?
4: So, you know, I teach college students now, Mm -hmm. and I think it's, I don't know if it's just a challenge that I face, but I think sometimes when you, when an older person tells a younger person about the past, like their youth, it always sounds like an ethical argument like oh yeah, in the '90s we did this, um, and it, therefore it was better to be on AOL and to like <laughs> buy seven-inch singles and to spend thirteen ninety-nine on a CD. Even if I enjoyed that experience because those are formative, I don't. I never mean to, you know, like hold that over someone younger and say like you have to care about these things too. And when I was writing the book, I didn't want it to feel like I was just being nostalgic for the 1990s. And that the reader should feel that too. Like, I'm nostalgic for 1995 to 1998 because we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, we were just kind of f- trying to figure out who we were. Um, you know, you're young, you're not thinking about the moment, you're thinking about the next moment. You're, you're just living for adventure. And I'm trying to kind of capture what the texture of life in the 1990s for me was like. like using the internet, using the primitive internet, making mixtapes. It's not that these things are, are better than we have now, but time just felt very different then. And so once I figured out, I think, how to describe that time, like what it felt like to be bored and the the few things you could do to like fill in that time, I honestly felt like I was just hanging out with us. Like I would be writing yeah. and I would just feel like I'm, I'm just hanging out with us. and. And like you don't know what's gonna happen, but let's just let's just be in this moment. We're just driving to go get cigarettes right now, and like, what was that like? And so for me, that was something that um, I don't know. That felt really, really good while I was writing it, and I, I felt like bad about feeling good, but it's also what made everything so sad to me in the end. You know what I mean?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you spoke earlier about. Um, this realization that the memories were not going to continue to form um, and that you felt a little bit like you were in the past when you were writing at least initially. Um, as time went on, do you feel like you got to know Ken any better by writing about him after his death? And like, do you feel like your connection to him evolved or changed through this writing?
4: That's, that's an amazing question. Um, I, I do. I do feel like a, a different relationship. Um, you know, we were both Asian Americans in the 1990s and we would debate um, what, what we would now call like representation. You uh-huh. know, At the time we were just sort of um, kind of projecting versions of ourselves at each other. And so we would talk about like TV shows or movies and we had these dreams of making our own kind of student film. And I realized that whether it was intentional or not, that I've just become more like him over time. Oh, interesting. Um, Because he just was much more open-hearted about his dreams. Like, he wanted Mm -hmm. to see himself in the culture. I assumed that was impossible, so I never dreamed of that. And so I think as I've gotten older, um, and, and, you know, I think it is just the product of of obsessing over, you know, at this at this point, like this apparition, you, you know, like obsessing over these snippets of conversation, conversation that you would never have any reason to recall and parse because you would just have new conversations, you know. Mm-hmm. But going back to all of these things that we would debate and talk about, and kind of seeing, for example, like you know, Asian Americans in Hollywood and things like that. I do feel more connected to kind of the the size and scope of his dreams, which were just so much braver than mine were at that time. Wow. and so I do feel I don't know like I do feel a different relationship to to him, uh, even though he's sort of frozen in who he was at the age of 20.
3: Well, that was a very beautiful answer to that question. Um, you know we have a few minutes left, um, and so I want to I want to open it up to audience questions. If any of y'all have any questions, um, oh hello everyone, so nice it's to Dave see you. Dave Matthews y'all. can I ask questions. Um, <laughs> and and if you do have a question, we have a mic that we're going to bring you over here. I think we have a
0: question. Oh, okay. excellent. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I came all the way from upstairs. Oh, thank
4: you. <laughs> Hi. Very um, honored.
0: I really loved reading your book. I found it really vivid. It feels like there's your inside the moment, your description of feeling like you're hanging out with your friends is something that I experienced as the reader, which is really powerful. Um, I did also suspect that you were a pack rat um, because it is filled with so much detail. And I was curious about your process of Kind of going through all of your objects and your things, your zines, and then how did you then turn to the screen to write? How what was the relationship between that the stuff and your own
4: separate process? That's a great question. Um, I think for a while I thought that all of these objects, you know, like old items of clothing or just things that I knew had come from his apartment or that he'd left at mine, held some talismanic power. You know, just that if I communed with these objects some answer would reveal itself. But that that's just not, you know, they're just things and there is no, there's no story. There is no sense to it. So in weird way, my relationship to all of these objects kind of that that sort of um, constellate out of this moment has really changed too. Um, uh, yeah, so I didn't really, yeah, so I was, I sort of used them as these, these things to look at and think about like triggers, but, my relationship to things in general has sort of changed. Like I, I'm like, a, like very into collecting things and, and um, kind of being surrounded by old things. But I think I seek them out for different reasons now. Like they're they just sort of these um, a- accidental survivors of history. And um, that's sort of what, uh, what a lot of these things were. Now, there, there was one thing, which was a book that he read that I hadn't act- ever bothered to read because I was too pretentious to read his recommendation. And that became a very uh, pivotal thing to read because he had taken notes in it. And it was like having a new conversation with him and realizing that, uh, you know, just realizing how um, that, that that's one of the things I really missed.
3: Well, I think we have reached the end of our time together. So please give it up for Hua Xu. Thanks, everyone. Author of this amazing book. Here it is. Go check it out. Um, thank you so much for Thanks, being Jen. with us today.
0: That was Huashu in conversation with OPP's Jen Chavez. and before that, Melissa Fubos, in conversation with OPP's Tiffany Kamhai. This event took place at Portland Book Festival on November 5th, 2022 at the Portland Art Museum. This has been Literary Arts the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy, and to the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.